Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. As we're looking at some Old Testament stories, um, if you guys have uh, your phone or your iPad or whatever, um, download our FC app. You can follow along in the sermon notes section um, with our Wednesday night stuff. We have them on the screen behind us, and then we've got some notepads and uh, pens in the back if you guys want to follow along that way. But we're going to be looking at another story in the Old Testament, um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. You guys are probably super familiar with it. Um, story of David and Bathsheba. There's a ton of names in here, and so I am going to do my best to pronounce them um, as well as I can. But uh, if you have a question at the end, it's like, well, that's not pronounced right. Uh, my apologies in advance. Uh, so we're going to be looking at this entire chapter. There's a lot in here. And next week, we're going to do a follow-up um, to uh, kind of the, the fallouts of what happened I'm looking at 2 Samuel chapter 12 next week, but we're going to go ahead and hop into it. We're going to read, uh, break it up into a few different sections, starting with um, 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, uh, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof of a, saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, "Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite?" So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent uh, to David and told him, "I am pregnant." How many of you guys have heard the story of David and Bathsheba? Pretty, pretty uh, um, well-known story in the Old Testament. Um, and so we're going to be looking at everything from the offense to the confrontation to David's response um, in the next two weeks, this week included. Um, but we'll see. Uh, we should be able to get through the entire chapter this evening. But right out of the gate, you see David doing something that's out of character. Uh, what, is, what is that? What is, what is out of character that David is doing? Doesn't go to war. Yep. Um, it says, in the time of year when kings go out to battle, is David the king? Yep. Where is he at? Not in the battle, right? He is at home hanging out. Now, has David ever been one to shy away from battles? No, right? Um, he's a warrior, right? Saul's slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Uh, if you look at, we're, just real quick, we're going to look at, at some of his track records. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, this is right as he's being crowned king of Israel. It says, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. That David was the one leading, even though King Saul was in charge. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, it's like a laundry list of David's victories in battle. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. That David was engaged in battle. He is fighting. 2 Samuel 18.2, and David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, uh, uh, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. I want that nickname. Um, and the king said to the men, 
And the king, David, said, I myself will go out with you, that he is joining them in battle. And then in 2 Samuel 21, this is kind of where his, his, uh, his army was like, all right, David, you got to chill. You got to calm down. Uh, there was a war between the Philistines and Israel, and David went out down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, there's another good nickname, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zerai, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Like David was not one that was known to shy away from battle. Even as he's getting older, he is still out there and his guys are like, David, you got to stop. Like, we cannot lose you as king. Um, this same king who is staying behind in this instance is the young man that would fight off lions and bears when they would attack his sheep. This same king that's staying behind is the same young man who stepped up to face a giant when an entire nation was cowering in fear. Um, but now you have this king doing something that is out of character. And it's almost as if the author is pointing this out to say, hey, what happens next is out of character as well. He's not just staying behind in battle, but this whole sequence of events that's about to unfold is out of character um, for David. So David's walking around on the roof of his palace, admiring his kingdom, and he sees a woman bathing. Now, there's times where something pops up in front of you and you can't control it, right? You're watching a movie, maybe you don't know anything about it. There's uh, a scene with some nudity and you're like, holy cow, what's going on, right? You close your eyes. You're like, is it over, right? And, and you, nope, not over, okay, still. Yeah, like you're diverting your eyes. Um, David's up on the roof, and he's not necessarily trying to be a peeping Tom, but he sees this woman bathing, and instead of diverting his eyes, the original text would read something like this, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing herself, and the woman, woman was exceedingly beautiful to watch. He doesn't just see her, but he is watching her. Um, I thought of this, uh, this other guy in the Old Testament um, who, who God was with, whom God had chosen, whom God had used in some mighty ways. You've got David, who it's hard to argue that God was with. He's referred to as a man after God's own hearts. And then you've got uh, this guy named Joseph, who's in a somewhat of a similar situation, at least with the temptation that's involved. Um, it would be a lot easier to justify uh, Joseph's actions, if you were looking from an outsider's perspective, because the woman is throwing herself at Joseph. She's making moves on Joseph. She's not being very subtle about what she wants. And Joseph doesn't linger. He doesn't hang out. He doesn't flirt. No, he runs away. And he, like he runs out of his jacket. She's got a hold of him, and he runs out of his jacket. And now it costs him down the road that he spends time in jail. But even through all of that, God was with Joseph. And then you've got David, who is not where he's supposed to be. He's not in battle. He's up on his roof. He sees a woman, and he doesn't say, oh, man, I should divert my eyes here. No, no, no. He does what? He watches. She was exceedingly beautiful to watch. James 4, 7 and 8 said, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. That when it comes to this temptation, our, our actions should line up with that of Joseph, that we fight, that we resist, that we run away from this temptation, that we don't linger. And this is what David did, that Joseph ran, David lingered. And, you know, up to this point, um, 
Old Testament would say that David really hadn't committed a sin. That he that hey he didn't do anything. He didn't act it out. Um, and this is this is the deal with the Pharisees that it was all about what you did. Um, and so that's why they never understood the heart. It's like hey, what I do is what's going to save me. No, I don't need a heart change. I need I just need to do the right things. And so you know, so David hadn't committed adultery, but Jesus in Matthew chapter five says something that takes this new covenant um, a step further. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. David hadn't committed adultery yet, right? He hadn't committed adultery. But Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose that member of your body than your whole body to go into hell. And what we've got to understand is that while technically, Old Testament, David maybe hadn't a sin yet, but that sin was creeping up and taking root in his heart. And that what was in here was eventually going to be acted out one way or the other. Um, David's sin starts when he looked, when he watched, because it's in his heart. Um, a few weeks ago, a, a pretty prominent pastor here in Tulsa um, at Transformations Church said, it's okay to think about cheating on your wife, just don't do it. Um, here's a good tip. Don't listen to that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, because Jesus would say something totally different in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, don't even look. Don't even think about it. Don't let that sin take a foothold at all. Um, and Jesus is using um, hyperbole here. He's not saying, hey, gouge out your eyes, because that, even that doesn't fix the issue, right? What he's saying is that sin has to be dealt with in a very real and serious manner um, because uh, uh, sin has these deadly consequences. Martin Luther, when, when talking about this verse, he said, um, I can't stop birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from building a nest in my hair. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's one of these things, you can't control what, what's around you, but you can control your actions and you can control your thoughts, and you say, no, 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 I'm not even going to entertain that. Um, because when, when, when we linger in sin, um, it has deadly effects. Spiritually, it does. But we're about to read a story where we see these real-life deadly effects play out because David tries to cover up um, what, what played out. Um, so David doesn't run. He doesn't divert his eyes. Um, he doesn't even just watch. He says, hey, go find out who that lady is. He takes it a step further. Um, and it turns out this woman is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. Now, um, who knows who Uriah is? Anyone tell me who Uriah is? Who's Uriah? One of David's mighty men. Absolutely. One of nearly 40, 37, if you want to get uh, specific, of these men who were loyal to David before he was even king. Like before he had any power, while he was on the run, while the king was trying to kill him, while he was a political enemy, um, these, these men were loyal to David. And we read in 2 Samuel 23, the list of these mighty men. And in 2 Samuel 23, 36, Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of his mighty men. Now, these men um, weren't just soldiers. They weren't just allies, um, but they, they helped him become king. And, and we look at 1 Chronicles 11 verses 10 and 11, and then we're going to skip to verse 41. You're like, you skipped a lot. It's, I skipped a lot because it's listing all the feats of David's mighty men, and we don't have time to get all to that. Um, but First Chronicles chapter 11 says, now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men 
who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all of Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the account of David's mighty men. Goes on to give the list, verse 41, Uriah the Hittite. Man, it's gross enough to commit adultery, um, but to betray one of your most loyal men is, is, is gross. It's disgusting. But you know what? The connection doesn't even stop at Uriah. So um, you want to look at who Bathsheba's father is. Um, who is Bathsheba's father? She's the daughter of Eliam. Um, okay, big deal. Uh, remember two seconds ago when I was talking about David's mighty men? You know that Bathsheba's father was one of David's mighty men as well? It wasn't just Uriah, but it was, Dave, it was uh, Bathsheba's father. So if we were to pick a random verse out of 2 Samuel 23 where it's listing all of David's mighty men, I don't know, we see that Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, we see that Bathsheba's father was one of David's mighty men. Um, but let's go one more step down the rabbit hole. We see that Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, one of uh, the Gilonite. Who the heck is that guy? First Chronicles 27.33, Ahithophel was the king. David was his counselor. So you've got Uriah, his mighty man. You've got Bathsheba's father, one of his mighty men, and Bathsheba's grandfather, one of David's counselors. So you've got like two generations of these people who are incredibly loyal to David. So when he says, hey, who's that lady? And they go, it's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Oh, I don't know who Eliam is. Yes, you do. You know who Eliam is. He was with you when you had no other friends. And the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Man, the, the, the blinders that sin put on David's eyes is incredible. And this is what sin does. Right? It blinds us to the reality of what's going on. And we see it play out. And David didn't just stop there. Right? He didn't just confess his sins. He didn't stop at one, but he keeps piling on and attempts to cover up um, his, his uh, infidelity. We go on to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 6 through 13. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. David, shut up. He's trying to shoot the breeze right now. How's things going? Going good? Okay, yeah, all right. Cool. Um, Awesome. Then David said, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Go relax. Go hang out. Go take a break. You've been fighting hard. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When, David, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you, uh, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David sent Uriah, or said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of the Lord, but not go down to his house. Right? David could have, could have confessed to Uriah in this moment. Right? He could have said, hey, man, this is what happened. Please forgive me. I've sinned. Um, I've, I've fallen short. Please forgive me. Um, but he didn't. He attempts to cover it up. Um, he brings another party into his sin. He brings Joab. He involves Joab in this plot as well. Um, 
And, and David tries to get him to go home to relax, to take a break. But Uriah, in Uriah's mind, he's still on duty, that he is still in service to the king. Um, he's saying, if I'm not out on the battlefield defending the nation, I'm going to stay guard at your door and defend the king. But he's like, he's like the secret service here, right? He's like, no, no, no. If, if, if I'm not out defending the country and I'm here in Jerusalem and you're here, I am going to guard you. David had just slept with this man's wife, got her pregnant, and Uriah doesn't know, but Uriah is still loyal. And then what does David do? He tries to get him drunk, tries to get him under the influence of alcohol to go home and to have sex with his wife, and Uriah still doesn't do it. There's a couple of things to note in here. One, Uriah is acting more noble and more kingly than David is in this moment. He's standing true to what he knows he needs to do, right? It'd be super easy for him to go home. But here's the deal. He's also following something that he had seen David do in, in previous battles. Um, so in, in 1 Samuel 21, 5, uh, David had, had made this command. We'll read it. And David said to the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? What David is saying here, he says, hey, when we're out, when we're, we're journeying to a battle, when we're, when we're not home, um, we keep women away from us because we want our bodies to remain ceremonially clean. We want to be pure. We want to be holy. Um, Leviticus 15, 18 says, if a man lies with a woman and has an omission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. And so David's saying, hey, while this, this act is sanctioned by God, it, it makes a ceremony unclean. And so we're not going to do that while we're on battle. We've got to remain holy. Uriah had seen David do this in practice. And so Uriah kept up this practice because he's out in battle. And while Joab is commanding the army, he's still under the authority of David as his king. And he said, hey, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to make myself unclean. I'm married. Big deal. Big whoop. Right? I go home. Um, I, I, I hang out with my wife. Um, we have relations. I take a bath in the evening. I'm good. And I'll leave tomorrow. No big deal. He said, no, 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 no. Like I'm still going to be true to what I think is right. What David has modeled, I'm still going to be true. And I don't, I don't know, but it, but it makes me wonder if David picked up on what Uriah was doing. If David, like his mind went back to how he used to run things about how he used to, you know, require his men to remain pure. I wonder if he's kicking himself because this once standard of holiness that he required of his men is coming back to bite him in the rear. Like, I don't know these things, but it's interesting to note that this is the way David used to run things. Uriah is holding to that because in his, Uriah's mind, he's still under the command of David. And David is trying to get him to break that oath, to break that, that, that purity, that holiness that David once commanded of him. I don't know the answers to those questions, but I do know that when sin takes control, we stop thinking about other people and we stop thinking about God. And so David's like, I don't care if that's what I used to do. I'm trying to get myself out of this situation. I don't, I don't care if, if, I, if, if there is a requirement for us to be holy. I, I, I don't, we're, we're going to see if I can, if I can save my own, my own butt in this situation. Um, because up to this point, uh, the approval of God seems to be the furthest thing from David's mind. It's, it's what can I do to, to um, hold on to my reputation? What can I do to make sure that I'm not found out? Um, and, and man, until we are glorified in heaven, um, there's no place where we're immune from temptation. And so we have to be on guard. Um, 
David let his guard down. David, you know, you hear the saying that, um, uh, what is it, power uh, corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely or something along those lines. Um, there was no one that David was really answerable to. He's the king, right? I mean, for us, it's like we're answerable to our family. Um, and then if we don't want to answer to them, we're answered to like authorities and, and the police, right? And so there is this hierarchy of people that we have to, uh, uh, to answer to. But if you see some of the greatest atrocities that have been carried out in human history, it's by these dictators who have, they don't have to answer to anyone. And so they carry out these atrocities because, you know, I'm, and, and David is kind of at this point where he doesn't have anyone to answer to, but that doesn't mean he's exempt from having to answer to God. And he didn't keep his guard up. First Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Man, and we see in this moment, David getting devoured. But David has sinned. He's tried to cover up his sin. And when that doesn't work, he doesn't give up. What's he do? He continues the plan even further. Second Samuel verse, uh, or chapter 11, verses 14 through 26 says this. Excuse me. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fight and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall? And so they died at Thebes. Why did you go so near to the wall? And you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came to David and, and, and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said this to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband is dead, she lamented over her husband and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. Probably familiar with how the story ends. And a couple of things that, uh, that stood out to me as I'm reading this is this irony that David has Uriah deliver his own death warrant. Um, again, Uriah's loyalty, he's not going to open that letter. It's sealed by the king. He knows, he knows Uriah's not going to peek. Oh, what's in here? I'm, I'm close friends of, of the king. Maybe he'll let, no, I'm still loyal. I'm not going to read it. He, he has him, he has him uh, um, send his own death warrant to Joab. And Joab knew that, that David, even if David is commanding some stupid military tactics, that Joab's not going to go against the word of the king. And so David has, uh, has some of his servants die, has Uriah the Hittite die, and um, because of this, uh, this ignorant tactic. And so Joab sends messengers, hey, tell David what's going on. And if David gets upset because of what we did, um, he's got good reason to. I'm trying to cover my bases here. You know, let him know what happened. 
And so the messenger tells him what happened, and what's David's response? Good. No big deal. It's war. Sometimes people die. Right? Regroup. Go get him tomorrow, tiger. David's not losing sleep over this. There's no mourning. David's like, plan executed. Perfect. Just what I wanted to do. David's committed murder. Joab didn't. Joab wasn't guilty. Joab wasn't guilty. The blood was on David's hands in this. Um, and I want us to look where David had come from, right? This, this rise of this young man, this, this eager warrior rushing out to fight Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Now he's remaining in his palace when it's time for battle. He marries Saul's daughter, is honorable in his duty in 1 Samuel 18. Now he's committing adultery with another man's wife. David spares the life of King Saul, a man who's actively trying to kill him in 1 Samuel 24. But now what is he doing? He's having one of his, his best friends and closest allies put to death. There's about 15 years, give or take, uh, from the time David was anointed king to the time he actually took the throne of Israel. Uh, and, and in those 15 years, it's not a real easy 15 years. Um, he's anointed king, and he still has to be going back to be a shepherd. Talk about being humbled. Right? He's anointed king, and in those 15 years, he's being pruned, he's being shaped by God for the task of leading Israel. That's what he's doing. And we look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read this about him, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him, that God's hand was on David, that God had shaped him, had sanctified him for this purpose of leading Israel and being king, but even through all of that, he was still not perfect. He's still He's still susceptible to sin. And you see this sin take root in his life here in 2 Samuel 11. You see this hardening of heart where it's this disregard for everyone, including his closest friends, this disregard for everyone, including God. David at no point infers the name of God in any of this. He's not repenting. And we should look at this story as a reminder that we stay connected to God, that we don't let our heart grow hard. How do we not do that? We stay in the word of God. And I, and I referred to this earlier just in prayer, but Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. David had distanced himself from God and that he wasn't letting the word of God, he wasn't letting his, his intimate times that we read throughout the Psalms of his closeness with God. It's not like he, this was foreign to him, but he had distanced himself from that and his heart, beca- his heart had become hearts or his, his heart had become hard. Um, but next week we're going to read where the word of the Lord comes to him and it does what it says right here in Hebrews 4.12 where it cuts and exposes his intentions and his thoughts and what he's done um, through the prophet Nathan. Um, one last thing is, is we see that David, when he's talking to Joab, what's he say? He says, don't let this matter displease you. Don't sweat it, bro. It happens. No big deal. But what did God say about David? It said, this displeased the Lord. What David had done displeased the Lord. Translation is that um, David did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew gives this pretty cool picture, um, this word picture of God's eye twitching with anger, right? You, he's, he's so angry that there's like his, his eyes are twitching. Um, David, 
failed to remember that God sees everything that happens, that there's nothing hidden from God. Um, And next week, we're going to look at the fallout because David thinks he gets away with it. And then here, the very last verse, we remember the thing that David did displeased the Lord, that it did not escape the sights of him. And so next week, we're going to look at some of that fallout. We're going to look at David's response um, to this confrontation with Nathan and then look at, you know, he is repentant, but there's some serious consequences that follow from his actions. And it's just a reminder to us that one, God doesn't miss anything that we do. No matter how much we try to hide it from other people, successful as we may be, that God doesn't, uh, doesn't miss a thing. And that we stay in God's word so that we're not following down this pattern of sin, that his word is cutting us and exposing us in these shortcomings in our life. Um, and the last thing is this, is that when we sin, um, sometimes there are real life consequences that play out. It doesn't mean that you're not forgiven, but consequences have actions. Forgiveness doesn't mean an escape from the consequences. Um, and we're going to see those play out in the life of David next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this evening. God, thankful for your word. God, thankful that even through the Old Testament, God, we see um, Christ in it. God, we see you working. God, and we see these truths that we can take out from it. And Father, I pray that uh, as we go from here, um, God, we, we put up our guards. Um, God, that we are, are uh, understanding that there is an enemy that is seeking to destroy us. And so, God, um, we resist. We fight. God, we, we, <clears throat> we, God we, we hate what is evil. God, and we cling to what is good. God, praying that you continue to purify us, that you continue to sanctify us. God, that you continue to make us uh, more and more like you each and every day. Um, God, I pray that you would strengthen us as we walk out of here um, and be with us as we come back next week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.